Right, order, order, order please. Welcome to the start of the trial. Uh, my name is Philip, I lead the church here. It's great to see you. If you're new, let me add my welcome to you. Hope you have a great time with us this morning. Well, the first case before the trial this morning is this. 18-year-old Scott Bates was a very active member in his church. Like It's fair to say I think he'd had some troubles in the past, had Scott, um, but really he turned his life around. In fact, he'd become a member of the, uh, the mentoring team that, that looked after and mentored the youth in his church. At least that was the argument that his solicitor, uh, Joan Mitchell, was going to plead to the district judge, Paul Clark. And you can imagine Scott as he stood in the dock as his crimes were read out by the judge. You are here today, accused of stealing trainers from JD Sports, watches from Devonhams and clothes from Primark. How do you plead? And Scott was thinking to himself, kind of time stood still. What on earth has happened in the past 48 hours, he was thinking. I only went to Clapham to see what was going on, to see whether maybe I could even help some of the youth there. How on earth have I ended up here? How do you plead? The question from the judge came again. Scott tried to control his breath and the beating of his heart and very quietly said, guilty. Scott Bates, 18, and mentor for the youth in his church, was sentenced to 12 months in prison for his part in the August 2011 London riots. And when I hear that story, I kind of feel like order has been turned upside down. A youth mentor found guilty of theft. Someone who goes into Clapham to see what's happening and ends up committing a crime. Similarly, there was a 31-year-old man called Alex Bailey, and he too was caught stealing from Debenhams, I think. And yet Alex was a teaching assistant. We don't really expect someone responsible for helping children with their problems to become the problem themselves. That's not the way things should be, we feel. That's order being turned upside down. And the Bible speaks into so many of the issues, doesn't it, that we face today. And not least, it speaks into this issue of order being turned upside down. And we're going to be in this, uh, this preaching series, we're going to be in the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at some of the main themes from the book of Romans in the New Testament over the next 10 weeks. Uh, our kids in King's Kids and our teenagers in Ignite are going to be following the same series and the same themes. So I hope you as parents enjoy discussing the same things with your kids. I had some parents before the meeting saying they're being well taught by their children at the moment. So I hope that continues. We're going to be in Romans, as are they. Chapter 1 and verse 20. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 1132 of your church Bible, chapter 1 and verse 20. And Paul, is, many of you will know, Paul is a man being used powerfully by God to start and oversee the first churches in the first century, scattered across the Mediterranean and the Middle East in the aftermath of Jesus' death and resurrection. And really, the book of Romans is Paul writing a letter to one of those churches, one of those churches in Rome. And in chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul writes this. For his, God's, he means, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. 
So they, meaning us, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we, like our kids and our youth, are going to see four things this morning. Number one, what is the problem with order being turned upside down? What's the problem with that? Number two, what is order turned upside down? What's at the root of that? Number three, what is right order? And four, how do I live? How do I live in right order? So number one, what is the problem with order being turned upside down? Because that's Paul's primary claim from this passage. That's his primary claim, that order has been turned upside down. Now, before we get into that, we need to kind of just think about the nature of order and perhaps where we are on the spectrum of order, if you like. Because some of us really love order. We kind of naturally warm to that concept. Our diary maybe is beautifully managed. Our iTunes playlist is perfectly categorized. Our kids are in an excellent routine. Your desk at work is immaculate. You love the documents and the policies and the rules at work. Order is something that you warm to. And yet for others of us, we don't really warm to order quite so much. We might think, I don't really want order. I love the fact that Jeremy Corbyn has been elected. It throws everything up in the air, you might say. Many do say that. I want spontaneity or impromptu decisions. If I miss the train, I'll just catch the next one. If I'm on a city break, I don't want a map and an itinerary. I want to just explore and see where the walk takes me. But wherever you are, I guess, on that kind of spectrum of order, I think all of us would agree there are times when right order is clearly better. When right order is clearly better. If we go back to the examples of the Clapham riots in 2011 that I'm sure many of us remember that I was alluding to before, I'm sure all of us must have been relieved when the police and the courts brought things to order. And furthermore, those two examples that I alluded to earlier, the youth mentor and the teaching assistant, if you like me, but when you hear that, that a teaching assistant and a church youth mentor are involved in such crimes, you kind of feel that's not the way things should be. Order needs to be restored to those situations. Similarly, in the example that we've just been praying into just now, far more serious, those hundreds and thousands of refugees in such just desperate plight. In simple terms, what many of them are doing is fleeing from chaos, total disorder, and seeking to find right order in whichever country they end up in, seeking to find security, education, opportunity, shelter, and so on, seeking to find right order. I think all of us would agree that when right order is turned upside down, humanity rarely flourishes. I don't know where you are at this morning. I know where some of you are at this morning. Your situation may not be as patently severe as that of the refugees, perhaps. But you might feel as though order is upside down in your life. You might feel as though there is an element of order having been flipped upside down in your life at the moment. You might say, frankly, things are chaos. Or maybe, actually, there is order being flipped upside down, but nobody else knows. Nobody else knows, but you know. 
Maybe everything seems to be on the surface of it very orderly. Right order seems to exist in your life, but actually under the surface of it, you just feel a creeping sense of disorder, of order starting to be turned upside down. I really want to help us this morning. I believe the Bible is really going to help us this morning to see what right order really looks like. So secondly, what is order turned upside down? If we know that it's not healthy, it doesn't cause humans to flourish or humanity to flourish, what actually is it? What's at the root of it? Number two. If you go back into the passage and look at verse 21, Paul starts to give us a couple of clues. So two things. Firstly, in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What Paul is saying is that when order is turned upside down, it always starts in the heart. Always starts in the heart. Proverbs is a book in the Old Testament. uh, And in Proverbs chapter 4, the writer of Proverbs says something very similar. You might have heard the verse before in verse 23. The writer says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Some of you would know that verse. What he basically means is everything we do and say and think stems from what's in our heart. So first of all, disorder being turned upside down comes from the heart. It always starts in the heart. Secondly, Paul goes on in verse 22. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. So Paul's going further. He's saying, order being turned upside down starts in the heart. And then specifically, what it actually is, is Paul says, it's when humanity starts rejecting God. He's saying, rather than worshipping God, rather than living in the freedom that comes from the created, living in right order with the creator, we've flipped that around. We've flipped that upside down, Paul is saying. Or to put it another way, Paul's saying their heart's desire now is for things that aren't God, in simple terms. So let me just show you what I mean. Uh, I know some of us are more visual learners, so let me try and just show us very simply what I mean by using this extremely simple little visual aid. I hope it will just help us. Very, very simple. But what Paul is trying to help us see in very simple terms is that the right order of things is when we say, I am me and God is God. Or in another way, we say, God is God and I am not. Paul's saying that's the right order of things. When humanity acknowledges who the creator is. And what Paul is going on to say is that humanity has flipped that around. That what human beings have done since that first moment in creation is to turn that upside down. That humanity has said, God is not God. Either I or other created things. I will look to those things. That's what Paul's trying to help us to understand. He's saying, man has said in his heart now, I don't wish to worship God as God. I'll worship created things, self or other, or images, to quote what Paul says. And that's not how it should be, is the heart of what Paul is saying. That's order turned upside down. 
Just as we feel in faint terms that when a, a teaching assistant is caught up in riots and theft and stealing, we're like, that's not how it should be. That's the wrong way around. That's just a faint picture of what Paul is trying to describe as to what's happened in creation. He's saying it's order turned upside down. And it's interesting, isn't it, that in verse 23, Paul refers to right order being turned upside down as a result of, quotes, man exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Creeping things replace God in man's heart, which at first sounds like a rather odd thing to say. Creeping things replace God in man's heart. But of course, the parallels with the big story of the Bible are striking because the Bible is one big story. And if you go back to the first few chapters of Genesis, the very beginning of the big story of the Bible, we see right order being turned upside down for the very first time. And why? Why does right order get turned upside down that very first occasion in the first few chapters of Genesis, the beginning of creation? Why? Because Adam and Eve chose to ignore God and instead believe a creeping thing. And it was the snake, if you know the story, the snake in the Garden of Eden persuaded Adam and Eve that rather than remaining in right order with God, actually they should try and instead try and be like God. That was the lie that was believed. They chose, to echo Paul, to focus no longer on immortal God, but mortal man, self-created things. And if you know the sweep of the Bible, the story of the Bible continues through the Old Testament. The people of Israel continue to make this same mistake, and we just call it sin, over and over and over again. Like They know moments, don't they? They know moments through the story of being in right order with God, usually because godly, good leaders point them that way. But over and over again, they make the same mistake of rejecting God and choosing to make themselves or other created things God instead, in the center of their hearts. That's largely the story of the Old Testament as the sweep goes through from Genesis all the way through. And they know rebellions, civil wars, exiles. As mankind, the people of Israel continually reject God as the center of their hearts and instead focus on the created rather than the creator. Just some examples you might know in the story of the Old Testament. Remember early on in their history, whilst Moses is actually receiving to paraphrase, the method for right order on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai. He's receiving the very thing that people need to live in right order. And by the time he's come down the mountain, what are the people doing? They've made a golden statue, a created thing, and they're worshipping that instead. And that theme kind of continues through the sweep of the Old Testament. Later on in their history, the people choose to reject God as their king and say, no, 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 we want to be like the other people around here. We want to have a human king, a created king. Give us Saul, they say. And on and on, this theme progresses through the Old Testament. That is what order turned upside down is. When the human heart says, I will center my heart on self or other created things and not the creator. So if that is order turned upside down, what is right order? Number three, what is right order? I'm sure I'm not the only person who's driven around the Kingston one-way system before, and I'm sure I'm not the only person who has found themselves in traffic and late and slightly grumpy as a result. 
Maybe just me, I don't know. But I certainly found myself on one occasion late and in traffic and grumpy as a result. And I genuinely, for a few moments, as I kind of was in traffic, in between Tesco's, the Odeon and the station, if you know what I mean, and I thought, I genuinely, I could just cut across here, maybe. Like, I could just join that little bus lane and cut across and go against traffic, because I'm really late. Just for a moment, I kind of thought that. But in that moment, as I considered going against the one-way system, effectively, what I had to admit was... Kingston Council, you are in charge, and I am not. I have no choice in this situation. You're in charge, and I'm not. And ultimately, this system is the best one. That's the, what, the rules are in place so that the traffic flows. It's right order. Kingston Council have not put that system in place to be annoying. They haven't. <laughs> They've put that system in place for Kingston to flourish, for the traffic to flow, and for us to be able to move through a busy place. Some of you need some convincing of that by the look of it. <laughs> but that's just a very faint illustration. I know it's a faint illustration of the true right order that Paul is getting at. What he's getting at is that true right order is to say, you are God and I am not. That's how it was designed to be. And Paul is deliberately harking back to that original template in creation in Genesis. That's exactly how it was. If you read those first few chapters of Genesis, you see perfect right order. Humanity existing in right order with God. God is God and humanity is not. God is his loving, good father. His children walk and know perfect right order. Total flourishing in their hearts through creation. Everything is flourishing in those first few chapters of Genesis. Because mankind knows, I am created and there is a creator. And Israel, as I mentioned before, as the story of the Old Testament continues, Israel does know moments of that. They have some great leaders who point them towards acknowledging God as God and centering our hearts on him. And when that happens, they always flourish. They're always safe and growing and enjoying the blessing and the goodness of God. As I mentioned before, they continually, just like frankly I do all the time, allow their hearts to deviate from acknowledging God as God and instead to focus on created and not creator. And so as such, the people of Israel, if you know the story, live with this consistent promise that one day, one day God will restore right order. That, that joy, that bliss, that peace that we keep glimpsing through good prophets and priests and kings and judges and through the temple system, that, that order that we glimpse will be a permanent reality. That's the promise that the people of Israel live with century after century after century. And the Old Testament moves through the centuries to David in 1000 BC all the way through to Jesus a thousand years later in the first century AD. And if you know the story of the Bible, you'll know that one of the great things about Jesus is, is that he lives in perfect right order. Everything about his life is in perfect right order with God, isn't it? He knows the will of the Father. He's perfectly obedient to the Father. He even says on one occasion, I only do what the Father is doing. Jesus' life just exudes right order with God. Fascinating to me that even those who hated Jesus the most, who would do anything to see him killed, they could not pin a single thing on him. They could bring no charge against him. 
other than his claim to be God. They could not see a fracture of disorder in his life. The only thing they could pin on him was the claim that he'd made to be God. And of course, Jesus claimed to be God and to be the means by which we would know right order with God. Jesus said, if I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus said, to know God, you need a new heart. Remember? Right order turned upside down starts in the heart. And what Jesus said was, to know right order with God, you need a new heart. He said, effectively, you need to be born all over again with a brand new heart to know right order with God. And of course, those that thought that it was their external actions that were going to give them right order with God hated him for that. And the story moves through to the cross. And the cross is many things. It's like a diamond. Every different angle you glimpse it from shows you a new flash of light. But the cross is one thing in particular. Because at the cross, Jesus brings all of his right order Every decision that he got right, every single time he stepped into the will of the Father, all of his perfect obedience, all of his right order comes to the cross. And what you see on the cross is extraordinary because it's not just another example of mankind rejecting God and centering their hearts elsewhere. On the cross, mankind kills God. It's the ultimate act, is it not, of order being turned upside down. Man kills God. The ultimate subversion in the human heart, the ultimate act of order being flipped upside down. It's chaos on the cross. And that is why, for the Christian, the resurrection is so key. Everything hinges on the resurrection. I know for some of us, the idea of Jesus really coming back to life from the dead, that might be such a hard notion for you to get your head around. I acknowledge that. And I'd love to chat to you about some of the, I think, very authentic, persuasive, historical and literary and archaeological evidence that leads me as a former history teacher to be convinced that it really did happen. But for the, and for the Christian, everything hinges on whether it did happen or not. Because when Jesus came back from death to life, He said, I told you I was God, and I've just proved that to be the case. Right order is restored. Everything is made new. At the resurrection, Jesus is saying God is alive. He is declared victorious. His rule and his reign is in place. The chaos of the cross has been replaced by right order. God, alive, true, victorious, triumphant. Jesus stands at the empty tomb. Right order restored. And that is what right order is. It's for the human heart to look at Jesus at the entrance to the tomb, alive and well, and to be able to say, right order is restored in that moment. You are God, and I am not. As a result of that event, thousands and thousands of people started to say the same thing at great risk of their life. Churches exploded across the Middle East and the Mediterranean because thousands of people at risk to their life were convinced that because of the resurrection, Jesus is God. I'm not. Caesar is not. Jesus is God. You are God and I am not. And that really is the answer to our last question, number four. And we'll close with this last question. How can I live in right order? How can I live in right order. 
Now, let me set out a danger here, which I hope you've already picked up, but if you haven't, I want to emphasize it. And if you go away with nothing else this morning, please take this with you. When you say, you are God and I am not, that has to be a heart thing. It has to be a heart declaration. Remember Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Why? For from it flows the springs of life. To say, you are God and I am not, is a heart decision. It's a heart phrase. You are God and my husband is not. You are God and my children are not. You are God and my dreams and fears and ambitions are not. It has to be a heart thing. You see, in my brief experience, there are three types of people in Kingston. It's not as simple to say there are the Christians and there are the non-Christians. I think there are three types of people in Kingston. The irreligious, the moral, and gospel people. You see, irreligious people say, I don't really care whether God is God or what he says right order is. I don't really care whether God is God or what he says about right order. I'm going to live according to my version of order. That might be you this morning. That's one type of person in Kingston. Another type of person in Kingston is the moral person. Moral people look as though they are living like God is God and I am not. Moral people appear to have right order in place. Their external actions would demonstrate that. But if we're only a moral person, if we're only a moral person, our external actions really are quite possibly coming from a heart that says, if I do these things, God will love and accept me. If I do these things, God will answer my prayers or give me what I want. My good behavior, my avoidance of sin, my prayers are really to put God in my debt. That's moralism. That's not the gospel. Moralism still means that right order is turned upside down. Moralism means actually, although I'm living as though God is God and I am not, actually my heart is putting God in my debt. He owes me. And order is still upside down in my heart when I think like that. And I've fallen into that so many times. Avoidance of sin, good behavior. If I, look, if I pray X many times, God will kind of owe me. He'll love me more. He'll accept me more. He'll answer the things that I want. He'll give me the desires of my heart. When I fall into that slipping, that's not the gospel. That's moralism. God owes me. The disorder is still in place. Order is still upside down. I found myself so challenged about that through the summer. Actually, my external actions might demonstrate that I live a life where God is God and I am not. But look at my heart sometimes, and actually, it can be the other way around. God, you are God as long as the church grows. I've been praying that recently, or praying right stuff into that. I want God to be able to say, I want, I want my heart to be able to say, God, you are God, and the growth of the church is not. God, you are God, and whether my fiance and I get to have kids or not, you are God. That's a heart thing. has to be a heart thing. Gospel people, so that's irreligious people, moral people, gospel people say, my heart was full of disorder. 
God, my heart was upside down. I wanted created things, myself and others. Gospel people say, I agree with Paul. My heart was not inclined to God. It was inclined to created things, myself or other things. Gospel people say, and I didn't do anything to fix it. I didn't do anything to fix it. Jesus did. He went to the very depths of human chaos and reversed order. He went to the very depths of that for me. And he rose again to make all things new and give me a new heart. See the difference between a gospel person and a moral person. It's a heart that says, God is God and I am not. And everything I do flows from that. Everything I do flows from right order being put in place in my heart. And so my question to us, not to you, to us, is can you say that this morning in your heart? Can we, can we make sure, are we able to get our hearts in right order this morning? God is God and I am not. Let me just push us a little bit further in these last few minutes. Why don't we break it down to some of the things that can vie for the attention of our hearts. What about finances? You might have lots or hardly anything. But a heart that says God is God and I am not allows you to give your finances, steward your finances, and enjoy your finances. See, that's the thing about moralism. See, moralism, when it flips those two things upside down, moral people actually find it very difficult just to enjoy their finances and their resources because they're being careful and giving to get God to, see God, this is what I'm doing, giving it away, living carefully. Come on, you owe me. Actually, a gospel person with a heart that says, you are God and I am not, feels very free to enjoy the blessings of resources and finances that God gives us. And they feel free to give it lavishly and generously. Gospel people will enjoy their resources, steward their resources, and give them away abundantly and lavishly. What about career? What about career? I am God and you are not. Now, Initially, we can think, okay, that means that career comes second place to God. And maybe because God is God and I am not, I will just go about my daily humdrum career life. Won't be too pushy. Won't try and push for promotion because God is God and I am. I don't think that's how it works. There are two very, very different but starkly similar in some ways manifestations in the career world. Sorry, that is the worst phrase ever. Let me start again. When you, when you say God is God and I am not, two very different things can still happen in the career workplace. Here's one. You can say God is God and I am not. I love him, honor him. He's given me gifts and skills. He's made me brilliant at these kinds of things. I'm going to go for that promotion so the business flourishes, so my boss gets all the plaudits, so we make loads of money and we keep growing and I get to be good at all the things that God's made me good at because he's God and I'm not. That's possible. A gospel person can do that. A moral person feels a bit embarrassed about doing that. And a gospel person can also say, God is God, I am not. God has told me to look after my family. God comes first, my career always comes second. He's commissioned me to steward and enjoy and care for my family. So because God is God and career is not, I'm sorry, but I got home at half past five. 
I go home at half past five, I get that train home, I see my children, I bath them, I pray for them, I read them a story, and I miss out on the promotion as a result. Because God is God and career is not. You see how it's different? And yet it's the same, because it comes from the same heart. I'm not trying to drive you to external behavior modification. I'm trying to point us towards getting a heart which says God is God and career is not. What about marriages? God is God and she is not. Man, I'm having to live through that at the moment. When you're engaged, oh, it looks pretty great to me. Marriage course? Who needs a marriage course? I'm just thinking that is the worst endorsement of the church's marriage course ever. But as you lead up towards your wedding day and everything is saying, make it this amazing day and, and spend loads of money on it, I have to keep saying, God is God. She is not. That day is not. But equally, it means that I'm free to enjoy what God does give to us and bless us with in resources and people and money and so on. But when you're married, what's in the heart? Are you able to say, God is God, he's not? Or your desire for marriage? Like Terry pointed to last week, a gospel person is free to pursue the gift of marriage. If God's put that on their hearts, absolutely. God is God, and my pursuit of marriage is not. Parenting. I'm not a parent, so it's easy for me to feel a bit embarrassed about speaking to parenting. But I don't, so I will. (laughs) (laughs) But if that is the heart reality, if that's the heart reality, God is God, my children are not. But because God is God, of course I'm going to love them, commit to them, sacrifice for them, serve them, pray for them, fast for them, to see them flourish and be everything that God's created them to be. God is God and they're not. So they won't rule my life. I won't be governed by all that Kingston tells me to do to book every single available activity for them. God is God. They're not. We're going to sit in the garden and read a story. What about your future? Last one. Am I the only person to have dreams and ambitions for the future? Things that you barely tell anybody else because they're so deep in your hearts. If they're deep in your heart, it's probably because God put them there (laughs) to get married, to have children, to, to go abroad and plant a church, to see the business flourish, whatever it is. I have found that deep passions in the heart can occasionally vie for their place on the throne. God is God, I am not. Listen, as I mentioned earlier, you may be experiencing all kinds of order turned upside down in your life at the moment. I know of some situations, but not all. It may be obviously chaos. It may actually appear superficially very orderly, but you know, either in your heart or elsewhere, order is beginning to be turned upside down. Jesus is standing at the entrance of the tomb, having reversed all of the chaos of the cross, and he's saying, I am God. You are not. Come and enjoy me. Center your heart upon me. We're going to be sharing communion now together. In fact, we're going to be sharing communion every week for the next 10 weeks together. And if you've been a believer for a while, it's very easy to get familiar about communion. I want to point you to one aspect of communion this morning. When you break that bread, or you're given broken bread, when you spill that wine, 
into your mouth. Just think of the chaos that represents God being killed by man. Total order upside down. And as you eat that bread and drink that wine, think of the order that was restored as Jesus' body came back to life and he strode from an empty tomb and said, I will make all things new. I am God, you are not. Right order is restored, follow me. You might be here exploring the Christian faith this morning. You're not sure about Christianity. You have questions. I hope you know how welcome you are with us this morning. You should feel under no obligation at all to, to take communion with us. But instead, why not ask yourself some questions as that's happening? Ask yourself, why are these people doing this? What is it they really believe? What do I think about the claims of Jesus to be God and the only means by which to know right order? Take time to think that stuff through. So in a second, the, the, stu- the stewards are going to appear to my left and to my right. It's bread and wine to my left and my right, and it's gluten-free and uh, fruit juice towards the back top left as you're sitting. So whatever suits you and serves you, come and take communion whenever you are ready. We're going to sing at least a couple of songs together. We're going to invite Daryl and his band to come back up. Take your time to do this. have got at least a couple of songs to do that. You don't have to come straight down. Of course you can come straight down. When you do come straight down, it will be good to maintain right order. (laughs) So come down the left-hand side of your aisle and then go back up the left-hand side of your aisle will mean that there is a picture of right order amongst us. It would be wonderful. You can take time to pray with the person next to you, with your spouse. Andrew will lead us in further response later on with the prayer team. This is not an overly formal thing. You can stand, sit, sing, worship, pray, talk, think, whatever best serves you. Can we stand, please? And I'll pray. We're going to sing a song called Did You Feel the Mountains Tremble? which celebrates the victory of resurrection. Jesus, we're so grateful and amazed that even now in our mind's eye, as we see you standing outside that tomb with your hands wide open, right order restored, all things made new. And you're inviting us to make you again today king and God. God, we say in our hearts right now, you are God and we're not. For us to know right order in our hearts is to declare that truth every day. And God, I pray for those of us who find that so hard to say, as we analyze the deepest corners and recesses of our hearts, our dreams and our fears, our ambitions and our struggles. I pray as we share this wonderful ritual together of communion. Come and meet us, Jesus. Do a work in our hearts so that we can walk from this place saying right order is to say you are God and I am not. We love you, Jesus. Amen.